we didn't really talk about the cut. Deliberately, us in Embrace would do our best to forget it. Remember when we were in Kalsa? How I kept staring at the remnant there. How you all laughed at me every time its foot hit the ground and I'd jump out my skin. Well, it's like that. You, who'd grown up near remnants, had made yourselves blind to their strangeness. Faced with the uncanny, we make excuses for the incomprehensible. In Embrace, you'd grow up with your Saba, your Ma or Pa, telling stories about the kids who'd vanished into the cut. In the Ginnels, you'd learn how to spot the glimmer of the passes. You'd carry a shell, just in case, so that if you got lost in there, you could listen out for the royal and guide yourself home. But beyond that, it's not really a thing you spoke much about with mates and family. The pamphlets would only ever nod to it, as if bare mention would be enough to usher forth its weirdness. There were a set of mirrored pathways to not think too hard about. When we were to utter words about it, you know, when we'd had too many, we might talk about it being the city's ghost. Maybe every place had something like it. An accumulation of so many people had somehow brought it closer for us. Or you'd go and you'd hear a sermon from a parson priest and they would talk about it being heresy itself. The body of Kadroya splayed out over the trill. The grasping of Redella holding them both in place. The furrows and the tunnels were their veins, the chasms their organs. To enter was to enter bodies divine, was to transgress against all that Parson preached. Each of us lived with those contradictions in our head, and uttered not a word of one of them. We had little to gain from picking at that knot. And then, very suddenly, we had to. Do you know what one thing unites all of the theories held about that place? It's this. In all of them, the cut is somewhat attached, like a barnacle clinging to one side of the city. But the cut is not addition or reflection or parasite. It's not a mirror, but a window, mud-caked, fogged and frosted. And if you're lucky, you can spy glimpses of the other side. A whole ecosystem, a body of its own, stretched and distant. And where it and our world meets is the shallows we call the cut, is conversation. Orkin had placed himself in the middle of that conversation. There, dangerous shadows moved, and when they arrived, they'd arrive with cruel familiarity. Welcome to These Flimsy Rituals, an actual play podcast focused on telling small stories in big worlds. Joining me today are Beck Mihalik. Hi, I'm Beck, and you can find me on Twitter at r underscore Mihalik. And Nate Crowley. Hello, I'm Nate Crowley. Uh, you can find me at Frog Croakley on Twitter. That's F-R-O-G-C-R-O-A-K-L-E-Y or on rockpapershotgun.com where I write about the PC games or stuff like that. I do books and all. I'm your host, Adam Dixon. You can find me on Twitter at addtdixon. And you can follow the show on Twitter at Flimsy Rituals. We have a website at flimsyrituals.com. And if you want to come and chat about the show, you can find us on Discord as well. So if you've listened to Shards and Fragments Earlift, You'll probably recognise Nate. Uh, he joined us as a guest then. It was the first time we saw Oaken on screen. 
and Nate is joining us again today as a guest to play and reprise one of his characters, Mel. She's a good one. So today we are going to be picking up from our last score, where we saw Oaken slip into the weird parts of the city. At the end of the factory score, Oaken slipped from a race proper into the weird undercity we know as the Cut. But I think where we're going to join the action now is Oaken waking up in a place called the Winter's Lodge. It's kind of a refuge, a sanctuary, a safe place that has been built in the Cut. It is run by a faction of the same name. They call themselves the Winter's Lodge. They are a faction of weavers and binders and ghosts and spirits and everything in between. One of their main focuses is providing a safe place for newly awakened spirits to recover and get their bearings before some of the, I guess, less understanding institutions of Embrace Proper come across them. Winter's Lodge as a building will look different according to the angle you gaze at it from. You might see it looking like a lodge with thick white walls and arched doorways and a nice light garden. You might see it looking almost cathedral-like in shape with snow-veined walls all around it. You might see a monochrome tower, you might see a strange gull at the heart of the cut. No matter how you see it, it's united in a couple of ways. All of it has this thin veining, almost like ice, coating the exterior and interior. And all of it is saturated with this thin, almost snow-like substance that falls towards the ground. And I think it's the snow that our camera focuses on as we come to settle on Oaken. We see a room, well-lit, wide, with a large four-poster bed in the centre of it. There's a feeling in this room of it being a space of rest and healing and recovery, and Oaken is laid on the bed, his eyes slowly flickering open. And in this room, like the rest of Winter's Lodge, the snow falls through the ceiling. It doesn't settle anywhere, but it just constantly falls. Oaken, you wake up in a room you've never been in before. You can see the snow falling around you, you can see the light coming in through the windows. How are you feeling? What do you do? I'm feeling groggy. Mm-hmm. That's very fair. I think this hasn't happened in a while. I was kind of getting used to like having friends. Yeah. And feeling connected to something. But that was really silly of me because of course it's inevitable that this would happen and I would fall back asleep and wake up and everything's the same but everything's different. Yeah, I guess you've got, like, no way of knowing how much time has passed, really? Yeah, and I'm in a very different place. And to Oaken, it must have been centuries since that moment where you were with Ezra in the factory. Yeah, yeah, I think Oaken's presumption is that Ezra's long gone. 
isolated, feel sentimental about any of it. This will just push it deep down to some place inside me and greet this new world with apathy. <laughs> so I think the other thing you notice as you wake up is you notice a new sensation where your third arm used to be. And I think as you look down, you see like in your dream, your, your third arm is back. It's different. It's not what it used to be, but you have a third arm again. Nate, did you want to describe what this third arm looks like? Yeah. So, it would have been nice if someone could have prepared you for this, because you know what they say, forewarned is three-armed. <laughs> <laughs> you dreamed of having a third arm made of honey. And that's true enough. But it's not like any honey you've experienced before. It's colourless, for a start, and appears almost substanceless to look at. It's almost as if it's a viscous mist, but it seems to be resting on the bed, solidly enough. And indeed, as you look, there is a small, translucent bee flickering in very deep ultraviolet, uh, crawling across the surface of the arm with its tiny glassy mandibles uh, working away to extrude um, or to, to work extruded strands of the strange honey and knit the final strands of this arm together. And as it does so, as its little mouth parts wicker away, you feel the strangest sensations. Not the sensations you'd expect to feel um, from a, a bee making your arm. You feel the faint gust of damp air from washing flapping on a line. You hear a senile cat very faintly yowling in the middle of the night. You smell petrichor rising from warm paving stones uh, after spring rain. Strange, strange, unconnected sensations uh, from all of the senses, all of them indistinct, as if they've touched your brain directly, having bypassed any nerve or any sort of cogitation. And as soon as you've registered them, they're, they're gone, uh, with almost no memory of what they felt like. They're impressions of feelings, you might say. And every time the bee moves its mouth parts, you get a little flurry of these. They're not overwhelming. They're very strange. I think we spoke in the last episode about Mel showing Oaken bits of, like, the city that she had collected. Is that what is that what this is? Yes. Well, she's had a lot of time on her hands, and she's been very busy, but Mel is a creature of many parts, and some of those parts have had a lot of time to kill, so they've been watching and cataloguing um, trying to understand what makes the city the city and what makes people people. And all this ephemera seemed like a good thing to catalogue. <laughs> um, and bees, after all, are, are great gatherers. And Mel has many, many kinds of bees now. And they've been gathering these sensations. And just as bees process pollen into honey, so they have processed these little sensations, these tiny little nano vignettes of the city into a sort of a mimetic honey 
mm. uh, which has now been worked into an arm. So, Oaken, I suppose what's attached to you is sort of a, a, a museum of feelings attached to the city. Either way, it's a totally sick arm, really strong. I think I've kind of pepped it in here and there, but Oaken has really missed his third arm. And and the extreme joy of getting it back matches only the absolute terror of getting it back in this way. What's frightening about it? From from Oaken's experience in life, his assumption is that no one would ever give him this gift without asking for something very, very large in return. So do you like it? He absolutely loves it. And it's a weight around his neck immediately. <laughs> Good, says Mel, who has been sitting quietly but heavily on the end of the bed, watching you flex your fingers and come to terms with your new arm. She has a peculiar expression on her face. I don't think she's quite got the hang of which facial expressions go with which feelings yet. But you suspect she's trying to go for well-wishing, anxious anticipation. Very, very bold of you to assume that Oaken is any good at reading expressions anyway, or would care to. <laughs> <laughs> well, then, in which case, it's a fine matchup. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> How is Mel appearing right now? Uh, just now, um, she's an extremely heavy-set woman with glossy, dark gold skin, and she's wearing tattered strips of wax. And looking somewhat pensive, like I say, or as best as she can. I think as well as clocking Mel as you look up Oaken, you see stood somewhat behind her by the door. A figure you recognise from, I guess, in the in terms of the city centuries ago, in terms of how long it's been for you, probably just like a year or something. Uh, you recognise Soka is stood there the amber-soaked orphan that tried to steal your spear that time. Uh, really hope she was a nightmare. <laughs> she was not a nightmare. Or <laughs> maybe she is, but like in a very different, more literal sense. Yeah, she is, but she's here. Yeah. I think she stands looking almost a little bit impatient, watching you and Mel. I think it's hard to say, looking at the pair of them, who is quite in charge here, or like what Soka's relationship is with Mel? There's almost a little bit of animosity, maybe. Ooh. I think they're both um, almost trying to ignore the other's presence. Both absolutely sure that it's their job to be there to <laughs> greet you and set the scene when you awake. Yeah, Mel. Mel has, I think, staked her claim by literally sitting on the bed, probably a, a little sort of just unpleasantly close in a social sense. It'd be quite weird waking up to someone sitting a foot away from you. <laughs> um, but, you know, that is the way she's ensured that um, that she's there to, to, to welcome you to the Winter's Lodge. Um, yeah. yeah, I think Soka is definitely, has less power in this situation, is just stood waiting for whatever comes next. I think I might ask Soka 
almost sarcastically, so did you fix the city yet? We are working on it. This wrong place will be made whole. Me and that which is all of us, and at which she like nods to Mel, mean to fix this void. You promised to help us. And she doesn't quite, like, ask it as a question, but it, like, hangs in the air like a question. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, but that was uh, a while ago. I, th I thought you would have... It of... was no time at all. How How is Mel reacting to all of this? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I can't leave the bed because Mel is sat there also. <laughs> I am looming quite yeah. heavily. <laughs> Um, can I just clarify exactly uh, what level of direct control I have over Soka? Yeah, I, I don't know. I feel like you probably have the ability to have direct control, or at least test that, or have in the past. But I almost like the idea that Soka has become a little bit entropic. I've got an idea for this. Okay. Uh, Mel clears her throat very viscously, a sound like a, a shovel being sort of stuck into a blocked filter pump and shoots what's probably meant to be a bit of a glare soaker. Yes, my thrall, for a thrall, it and we are, I still struggle with first-person pronouns, is getting a little overeager, speaking out of turn. I, that is to say we, that is to say I, do have plans. And suffice to say, they have become a little more urgent, as the situation down here has developed. But, rest assured, I do have plans, and I am in control. And Soka would do well to remember that. Ooh. I think Soka just leaves the room. <laughs> ah, just as I commanded. I lie. <laughs> <laughs> I think at this point, uh, not just in this conversation, but in general, Mel has had to get used to feigning direct control mm. over a lot of her component organisms. There is, there is a lot of independence going on. There's a lot of fracturing. A lot of, yeah, dare we say it, entropy. Yeah, I almost like the idea that because, because she's been pushed to the limits of her power, she's had to almost take risks in that regard. Yeah, I mean, Mel's overreached. Yeah. Um, mm. She was a consciousness pre-configured to be distributed across, you know, a couple of mil of bees. <laughs> um, but the problem is Mel's been experimenting. You know, she remembers all the different envoys that Relict used to have. And of course, she had some connection to them. And she's been able to reverse engineer some of them. Uh, some of them more successfully, some of them much less successfully. And she's also been compulsively creating varieties of bees. She has spread herself far too thin. But she would be the last person to admit that she's losing control because for something that's always existed as a just-out consciousness, 
losing control over the hole it's pretty much the most frightening thing that can happen mm. yeah Did, i can't imagine she feels fear in quite the same way others would no i think she feels something that she'll come to recognize as fear but she doesn't know what it is yet I think it's probably seems more like a frustration at the moment that inhibits her ability to solve problems. She doesn't know why. I think um, so after Mel's declaration, he seems to ease up a bit and kind of goes, okay, so you want help. That's the price for this, referring to the third arm. And now he's back in his element. Okay, it's about duty. It's about being compelled by outside forces. Who do you want killing? What do you want killing? Oaken, you owe me nothing. <laughs> of course I do. You're asking me for things and you gave me a thing. You could see the thing I have given you as the repayment of an old favour you did for me. D did I? You killed Relict. I didn't think you'd be particularly pleased with me for that one, but... Oh, I wasn't. I hated you. <laughs> <laughs> but I've become something else. I've seen the potential to become further things still. I feel something of a, a boulder in motion. I must keep up my momentum. But it is you I have to thank for levering me free from the rock to which I was bound in the first place. And that was that beloved Titan. So although I mourn it, and cannot ever truly forgive the transgression of eliminating it from the world, I feel I have rather more to thank you for than to curse you for. Hence the arm. Free and gratis. Nothing in this world is free, but you're welcome. If you were able to provide assistance, it might be a matter of kindness. Yeah, yeah, okay, okay, here we go. But I cannot force your hand, or your other hand, or your third hand. <laughs> you see another three arms joke. I am learning humour very well. <laughs> <laughs> but no. If I am to be honest with you, and why not? Let this be a time for honesty. I am stretched enough as it is to maintain control over this, the Winter's Lodge. You've done me a kindness once long ago. I've done you a kindness in return. Perhaps if you would do me another kindness, well, then I would owe you one, wouldn't I? Not, not that used to people owing me things. I mean, what would I, what would I want anyway? There's nothing you could give me in return. I've got my arm. <laughs> you played your hand too quickly. You played my hand too quickly. <laughs> Fucking hell! <laughs> There's nothing, perhaps, I could do for you at this exact moment. That's not entirely true. You see, I told you already. I seek to become something more than I am. Not out of greed or ambition, but through necessity. I fear what I am now is not stable. It will collapse if it continues to dissipate. But there is something here in this lodge 
within it in a way that's topologically quite fucking difficult to explain. (laughs) (laughs) But it is there, and I definitely know what it is. It's something I need. Because with that in my grasp, the way will be eased. I can and will become something far greater. And then, Oaken, I could offer you a great many things once I've filled the hole in this city. Is this the point where we set the scene and the stakes? Yeah, that sounds really good. Yeah. So, I think to zoom out a little bit, and maybe this comes a little bit through Mel talking to you as you're led through Winter's Lodge. Essentially what Mel has been doing over however long it was since Mel saw you last. I think it's been about 150 years. It has been a while, yes. Yeah. Mel has been rebuilding her strength underneath the city. I think partially to do the thing that she said to you of like fixing the city and the hole in it. I feel like there might be some ulterior motives there. There's definitely a sense to which Mel might be a little bit vengeful against Embrace for what it wrought upon Relict. Oh, and it's probably worth mentioning at this point, as well as her array of familiars and her bees, uh, Mel has been experimenting uh, with people as well. Mm, yeah. As you walk through the the passageways of the Winter's Lodge... Uh, you see a great many people, um, both spirits and and the living, taking shelter there. But you notice some of them have got an odd manner to them. And as they walk past you, you turn your head. And you can't help but notice the back of their skulls have been shaved uh, and implanted in each one very neatly uh, is a hexagon uh, that's that's clearly been cut clean through the skull and filled with a robust wax plug of of golden wax. And you think you can see a faint sort of saturation of uh, of black shapes uh, vibrating behind. It seems horribly like their, their skulls might be full of bees. Does the woman that Oaken woke up with at the end of his bed, d- d- does she have the same thing? Yes, actually. I think I was just going to ask, what kindness did you do to them? I provided them with a different sort of shelter. Shelter from the ravages of being human. They're still themselves, not annihilated their consciousnesses, just modified them to run on a different cognitive substrate. I think that is quite kind. I think that is a sort of shelter. And people come here for shelter, do they not? <laughs> so yeah, within the cut, Mel has been rebuilding her strength and almost taking part in a shadow war with two other similar forces. They are collectively known as the Shurek, and there are three of them. Mel is one part of this trinity. The next part is another envoy that we've seen before who Ash encountered, called Lilium. Lilium is an ancient envoy, looking somewhere between a millipede and a spider, that has haunted these tunnels for centuries, millennia, 
and they are rumoured to be one of the envoys of Radella or Kadroya. I think rumours and superstition and myth are, are, are split on that, but their aim is to retake Embrace. And then the last player in this picture is Karn Nimdaka, who we've also seen before in the Skeletons episodes. Karn Nimdaka is the founder of the Jackals, and he still exists under the city, a ghostly jackal with an army of very similar ex-jackals. So those are the three kind of players in this game, and I guess Winter's Lodge is right now at the, the centre of the game that they're playing. So I mentioned before that Winter's Lodge is this safe space. It is a place where ghosts and spirits, and I imagine other people, can come and seek shelter. It is shielded from most of Embrace. A lot of people don't know where it is. I, I, I think as you walk around, you can see that that hasn't ceased to be. I think, Oaken, you get a sense that there is a almost a strange truce taking place here. You can see the people that very obviously seem to fall under Mel's influence, and probably some creatures and other strange things too. You know, there are probably bees on the wallpaper, fluttering on balconies, all of those kinds of things. But I think you also see a group of people and spirits who don't seem to have the same wax cylinders in the backs of their heads. They seem to have... It's not quite a uniform, but a lot of them dress in very similar ways in the same way that like monks or like I don't know, nurses and doctors would. And there seems to be just people who seem to be seeking shelter here. And for the large part, those two groups don't seem to interact with each other. They they seem like two completely separate groups who maybe side eye each other as they go past, but have struck their own wary peace. So what is happening at Winter's Lodge is as Mel alluded to, there is something at the heart of it. Winter's Lodge is like a gull. It is flesh and substance that is formed around some kind of body at the centre of it. This bit that you're in now, this building, is just the exterior. It's the shell. The actual gull and what is inside that, the source of power, is the thing that has been fought over. Mel managed to get here first. Mel has maybe been here a few weeks, months, maybe even a year, trying to work out where the goal is and how to get into it. But at the same time, battening down the hatches for what seems like it will become inevitably some sort of siege. Yes. Yeah. And I think right now, at the edges of Mel's consciousness, that siege is probably starting. I think we'll play a little bit of like a faction game to kind of play that out. But for now, yeah, that's the rough idea of what this place is like. It's this sort of tense atmosphere. There's one faction, the Winter's Lodge, still trying to go about their day-to-day. -day, and all amongst them are Mel and her envoys. You said there was um, people in Winter's Lodge that weren't connected to Mel? Yeah. I think that they're almost like a long-running institute in the city probably exist you know in a realm of like rumor and myth i don't think they're necessarily well known about but i feel like they might have been here a century or two centuries and people talk about them they're they're folk heroes they are you know if you need to get away 
there are probably some people on the surface that know where you can go to. I imagine they've probably got some connections to Tales End as well. They're a mixture of like spirits and you know medical professionals and weavers and binders and and all kinds of people like that. I think as you move through the space and do interrupt me if there's anything you want to describe here, Nate or anyone. Just the ghost bees. Just um, there's a lot of sort of passageways. I sort of dug through stone, it seems. But occasionally we pass through colonnades uh, lined with pillars beyond which is just complete blackness. And in the blackness, uh, you can see barely physical uh, hexagonal structures. Uh, and if, if the bee you saw earlier was sort of translucent and, and sort of ultraviolet, these are somewhere beyond ultraviolet they emit light in weird spectra. Yeah, they're hives for ghost bees um, <laughs> who are doing the same to wayward spirits, not those under the protection of the lodge, because I think that might stretch the truce a little far, um, but they're going out and collecting pieces of lost spirits. You don't know to what purpose, but they are absolutely honking out spiritual resonance, <laughs> and you suspect it's part of one of my very many propagation experiments. I imagine the people of Winter's Lodge have probably voiced concerns about this at some point. Yeah, I don't think they're delighted with me having set those up, but in fairness to Mel, I honestly don't think it would occur to her that it might be rude to set up eusocial insect ghost reactors in someone's safe space. I think as you walk through Winter's Lodge, it continues to be this strange, almost amorphous space. I think you move between very structured, decorated rooms to spaces that feel almost like small caves, to spaces that feel almost like the interiors of shells, to spaces that feel like they're carved into the bark of trees. And sometimes it is as you walk between rooms, other times entire spaces seem to change with a blink. I think you continue for a while, talking to Mel, maybe with Soka following not far behind, almost looking a little petulant. Mel seems to be leading you somewhere with purpose. Though what that purpose is, I think we're destined not to find out yet. Because as you're walking down one of these corridors, you, you start to hear some noise coming from ahead of you. You're hit with the smells and the noises of what sounds like a refectory or like a common room or, or, or a dining area. And you, you're just back there to memories of training to be a jackal. You know, this, this big communal space where you all ate and shared meals. And I think as you're approaching that space, a woman steps out ahead of the three of you. They are tall and mixed between being gangly, but also sort of broad. They are dressed in a way where parts of what they're wearing is very formal. I think they wear a shirt, but then they have a kind of scruffy cardigan and... Maybe a skirt that is really, like, 
floofy and looks a bit crumpled and they've just got this weird mixture in both like the way they dress and their aura of being very serious and and trying to present like a professionalism but also being quite warm and a little bit scruffy i think they have multiple sets of eyes and i think they are wearing this intricate set of glasses that covers all eight of them and i think is this sort of amazing feat of engineering where there are eight distinct circles of eight pupils behind them. They step out in front of you and Mel and Soka, and they show no fear whatsoever of the envoy and their followers. They look straight at Mel and say, So you weren't going to introduce us? There was a need to? This was part of our arrangement when you came to this place when you said you were going to bring him here. He was going to be part of both of our custodies. I couldn't guarantee that was what Oaken would have willed. It is up to Oaken. Yeah, it's up to me. Yeah, <laughs> not but... <laughs> I don't, I don't care. I'm not taking sides. The, the, this person who is called Everyone Eves looks at, looks at Oak and says, Of course it is up to you. Everything you've ever done is up to you, and you will have a choice in what you do here. The first thing I'd like to offer you, though, is you must be hungry, and if, if you'd like to come with me, I could offer you a nice filling bowl of warm stew. We have wax. <laughs> oh, that's that's so tempting, but I think I'm gonna go with the stew. Suit yourself. I think everyone leads you into this refractory space. It is this big hall with lots of different tables dotted about, and I think at one end there seems to be a big, almost medieval castle-style kitchen with big metal ovens and roaring fires and, you know, this large workbench where there's lots of different people cutting lots of different, like, vegetables and meats and making big meals. I think it's very warm in here, but it's also very welcoming. I'll, I'll be out here. I, I call over the noise of the kitchen, seeming quite reluctant to go inside and sort of back off into the dark a bit. Yeah, I'd like to imagine there's maybe some sort of deal struck between you about whether, you, whether or not you can enter this place. Yeah, I seem quite crestfallen over that whole exchange. Aww. But, you know, no, it's okay. I've, I've, I've been very polite. I've just said that I'll be waiting outside. And it's okay. I've, I've various titanic wax constructs to attend to. <laughs> <laughs> can Soka go in? Yes. Oh, absolutely. That's why do you think I keep her around? Okay, then I think Soka slips in as well and just goes to sit at one of these tables, but doesn't follow Oaken or anything like that. It's just keeping an eye on what's going on. I think this big space, it has all these tables dotted about. There are different groups sat at those tables. Some of them seem to be like groups of people staying here or seem to know each other and are talking. There are groups of people who are obviously members of the Winter's Lodge, maybe talking to each other while they're off shift or on a lunch break or something like that. I think you even see maybe a couple of small groups or pairs of people, like usually spirits and someone talking to them, 
And I think you get the sense that they're almost sort of counselling sessions or like coaching sessions as the ghosts are given a chance to make plans for what they're doing next. I think as you walk through this space, there is one group that stands out to you most of all. And I think it's in part because they just don't seem to belong here. Gathered around one table, half of them stood up, half of them talking in very heated ways and arguing, are a group of maybe six or seven people. I think maybe half of them are spirits, half of them are living people. And the way they dress, the way they act, I think, Oaken, you read them instantly as radicals or revolutionaries. You've spent enough time around them now to know what they're like. <laughs> I know the smell. Mm, yeah. And I think as you're led by Everon Eves to, to the kitchen, you notice that while most of them are very drawn into their arguments and debates, one of them watches every step you take. I think Everon leads you to the counter and looks at you and goes, So, as I said, I, my name is Everon Eves. I, I'm one of the many who help run this place. We took you under our protection in part because Mel wanted you here, but it is an honour to meet Oaken himself in the flesh, of course. Oh, a bit of preening, you know, sticking out his chest. It's like, well, of course it is. <laughs> it's glad to know my, my name is still carrying some weight, even however many years later it is. I think everyone just sort of shrugs and is like, Something like that. Still. I will be around in this space if you need me. I I will leave you with Portant here. And they point towards one of the, the chefs. He will give you everything you need. And if you'd like to talk at any point, if you'd like to know more about what's going on, you can come and talk to me. But I will not press that on you now. Okay. You've just woken up and I'm sure you've been through a lot recently. We've all heard of some of the things that have gone on on the surface, and it makes sense that you'd need time. Well, I've got, I've got all the time in the world. See a lot that'll need it. Time doesn't mean much to us down here. And I think at that, they, they go and they take a seat further down the hall. But that's my thing. <laughs> <laughs> I think... As, as you're left lingering, uh, Portant Skrill, who is the chef that everyone pointed you towards, he, he moves over. He's this big chef with this huge friendly grin. I think he's, he's a spirit. And he's almost a little bit like an octopus in the way that like his spirit body has formed. I think his spirit is almost frayed at the edges, so he's got many arms and limbs that stretch out in different ways. I think this guy's my new favourite Flimsy Rituals character. <laughs> I feel like he's just, like, stood in one place, just, he's flipping a pancake over there, he's grabbing a bowl and filling it up and ladling it in some stew for you, and he slides it over to you and goes, everyone asked me to give you some stew, here's stew, I've heard it tastes very nice, I, I can't try it myself, but it's meant to be good, is there anything else I can get you? Would you like some bread? A drink? Um, yeah, yeah, I guess. I, 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 and I think... Cotton just kind of stops for a moment. It's like almost expecting you to say what you want, <laughs> <laughs> and then realizing that's not forthcoming. It's like, 
What would you like? Do you have a preference? Uh, I don't know. Just, just, you know what? Just the stew is fine. Just the stew and a little bit of space, maybe. That makes sense. But if you would like a drink, we, we have many, many drinks. We, we could ha- give you some tea, a water. We have... We have juice of different fruits. Um, we have this distilled drink from one of the root trees. You know, we 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 cut up one of one of the one of the roots from the the fleshwood, and we and we dried it out, and then we then we let that rest in some water, and it's very good, very like spicy and fragrant. This is not the usual brand of servile that Oaken is used to. <laughs> He's incredibly uncomfortable. <laughs> It's it's like you're meant to be fawning over me, not making me make decisions. <laughs> I feel like Porton just kind of like stumbles, not quite sure how to act around Oaken. There's just an awkward silence as you both just stare at each other. I think in my head, maybe it's awkward enough that he goes away and Oaken just kind of looks down. It's like, oh, I am really thirsty, though. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Oaken goes to sit down without a drink, and then, like, five minutes later, Portent comes over with, like, six different drinks. <laughs> I wasn't sure what you wanted, so, so I made you them all. Here you go. And then just, just like, a little bow and then and backs off. Oaken does not say thank you. Does, does Oaken eat on his own? Yeah. <laughs> it's not there isn't to talk to anyone. Okay. I think Mel. Your attention is drawn for a moment from Oaken to the edge of your consciousness, the edge of where all of the parts of you are. Which I suppose is probably roughly contiguous with the the footprint of the lodge in the cup, right? Yeah, I, I imagine you might have stuff beyond that, but I imagine most of you is within this space. Like, almost like a hive of bees, I guess. Like, the further and further you get out, the density of of your consciousness kind of wanes. How near the periphery is this this new event? At the edges of the lodge. Almost almost the entranceways to the lodge itself. And I think the space that you're drawn to is there's a space on the surface, there's a building on the surface called the Temple of Riala's Harbour. Listeners will know it as the temple where Lena is based, Lena Fisher. Or Lena Fisher was based because she's under arrest right now, but you know. And the temple is carved into one of Rodella's vertebrae. It spikes up into the air, and it's kind of been carved and shaped and scrimshawed. The space where one of the parts of you notices intrusion and kind of signals back to you is an inversion of that temple. I think we get this shot of this temple flipped upside down so that the roof is now the floor and the floor the roof. And... Instead of just being a vertebrae, I think two big ribs kind of jut out from it. And all along their sort of the sides and the sides of the, the interior of this temple, flesh is growing like two great curtains that fall along either side of it. And I think it's through this temple that a group of people are striding. Some of them, I think, as audience, we recognise. There is Galena and the Provenders. There are the ministers Silaset Nimkalad and her second Vasic Pale. And I think alongside them are some of their followers and employees, members of the Umbral Provenders, Silaset's private army, 
And I think members of a faction called Our Sweet Durance, who I think we mentioned in the Ground Itself episode, they're a, they're a group of people who are trying to bring envoys and remnants back into Embrace. And they're here as the first attack. They're here because of Lilium, who is looking to break into Winter's Lodge and get to the goal before Mel can. Well, I'm speaking with myself, trying to work out whether to attempt to talk to them or hit so incredibly hard there's no need to talk. That's entirely your choice. It's difficult. Increasingly, my personal curiosity and ambitions have taken me away from the very simple uh, avoidance of entropy that I was sort of created to further. Um, the unintended effect is I'm finding a lot more disunity within myself. I'm not used to having arguments with myself. I think the whole business frustrates me enough uh, that ironically it makes my decision for me as I become angry. And although it's at my own inability to be single-minded, the expression is going to be um, a display of brute force. That is going to be, you mentioned um, the flesh was, was hanging from the bone. Of, um, uh, did you say it was sort of uh, flowing to either side of the bone? Yeah, sort of. I think it's attached as if it's just regrowing along these two ribs. Yeah, well, I've um, obviously over the years I've been experimenting with a lot of different things. And a lot of these are to do with just out consciousness, because obviously I'm bees. Um, but another thing, sort of a school of thought, if you like, that I've always been very practiced in is uh, modes of preservation and the retention of patterns and order. And although I, I think it would be fair to say Mel doesn't understand anything of genetics, she's arrived at, at quite advanced biological manipulation <laughs> uh, by some really roundabout means. So this flesh, I'm presuming, is Rodella's. Yes, it is. And if Rodella is sort of salamandery, then I'm assuming that like many salamanders, like axolotls and the like, they're essentially permanently larval. They're neotenic. Um, and that basically means everything in, a, in an axolotl's body is a stem cell. That's why they can regrow limbs and even brain matter. What she has been able to get it to do is to revert to earlier states suddenly and dramatically... So I think a load of half-formed jaws and thrashing limbs are going to erupt uh, from the flesh to either side of this intruding party. <laughs> Perfect. Yes, I think we, we get a shot of footsteps echoing through this sort of empty temple, and then all of a sudden the walls spring into life. It's like, have you ever dropped something in a bucket of tadpoles? I mean, yeah. you know, by accident. You're not, you know, none of us are monsters here. Uh, but uh, it looks like just a load of still dark water, but then suddenly it's just loads of tails and things like that. And I imagine that's what the effect is in the walls. Yeah. Okay, so let's zoom out a little bit and talk about what we're doing here. So essentially, we're using some of Blades in the Dark's faction systems to basically play out what this attack on Winter's Lodge is like, and whether you manage to hold them off. So this is one of a few locations that are under attack, 
and we'll talk about your wand in a minute, but for now, what's going to happen is I'm going to tell you what, where you're being attacked or where, where you're doing stuff, and you're going to choose what you want to commit to it. Mm. You've got a few different kinds of resources. You've got, like, Mel, Soaker, you've got the Ghost Bees, and the people you've managed to turn into sort of Mel's vassals or allies or whatever you want to call them. And I think you've got a few other things that we're, we're kind of keeping secret. I don't necessarily know what they are until you bring them on screen, but various things that Mel has created. I have. Uh, I think I may have just blown my load with one of them, <laughs> because I couldn't resist when you mentioned uh, the flesh. But um, there we are. We'll just have that as a little warning for them, shall we? Yeah, yeah. So, so the way this is going to work is, in each of these locations, there are two clocks. One clock is whether or not whoever is attacking has managed to get through this location. And you can kind of imagine this like a circle with three different locations. There's the outside, which is where we are now. If they get through this, they get into the lodge, which is where Oaken is and where we've been so far. And if they get through that, they get to the goal, which is where the thing that everyone is after is. And so we've got a four-step clock representing their attack. We've also got a six-step clock which is about you rebuffing these attacks, so you trying to fend them off. It's a little bit unfair, but I imagine they're going to get through at some point, and that's kind of the narrative here. It's more about how long you can hold them off rather than whether you can. I think Mel is sort of an underdog in, in this whole situation. Unless she can persuade Oaken to help. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, shall we, shall we do some rolling? Yeah. I've given you two monster resources. Is this your one or your two dice one? Um, I think this is my one dice one. Uh, let's call it the um, the Neotonate, because that's what it is, I guess. Okay, that sounds good. So yeah, you get to one, roll one dice against me, and this group that is against you is our sweet Jorance, which has three dice. Yeah. So it's a bit of an unfair fight here, but if you want to bring anything else, you can commit anything else. But obviously, if you uh, if you want something else here, it won't be able to be anywhere else. No, this is just uh, I'm I'm almost probing, really. Mm. So let's just go with this, just the one. And I've rolled a one. And I've rolled a five as my highest dice. So on a one, you get to mark one segment of this clock. So that's one of six. And with a five, I get to mark two segments of this clock. So that's two of four. So so, so let's like describe this a little bit. I, I think your attack does catch them off guard. I think we see the scene of maybe a couple of a couple of their less aware members being caught up in whatever forms this is. Did you, did you want to describe how that works? Um, I think at first there's tails and stuff thrashing out of the wall. They are just thrown mm. off balance. Um, and it's a question of whether they can then regain their feet and get away uh, before the wall sort of grows over them Yeah, in a load of half-made salamanders. And I think at the minute, their efforts aren't there yet. They've almost gathered together a little bit in the centre of this big hall. And I think they've kind of circled the wagons and they've drawn out spirit weaponry and are firing these low, lazy arcs of, of like spirit spirit rounds into the into the flesh, trying to fend it off. But I think because Rodella isn't a spirit-based remnant, it's not necessarily doing that that much. But at the same time, um, you know, salamander larvae is not the creature we, we think of when we think of armour. 
So I think anything is going to be cutting swathes from that. Yeah, yeah, I think there's definitely maybe a couple of people with, like, you know, more conventional weaponry halberds and swords who are fending it off. I think we probably leave it at this sort of, like, ongoing struggle as the walls come in and they're, they're trying to shout to each other and give instructions. So, before we go into the next scene, let's talk about everywhere else, the, the rest of this space we're looking at. There are a few different things, a few different places where you can send your different parts of yourself. There are two more places like this that, that lead into the lodge. Those places are going to be under attack, so you can send stuff there. There is also the goal itself. So getting into the goal and finding out what's inside it, that's going to take some of your effort and time. And the last place you could send your resources, I guess, is, is to Oaken. If you want to spend any time trying to convince Oaken to help you in any way, then you're going to have to commit someone to do that, whether that's Soka or Mel or someone else. Okay. Um, can I do all that deployment at once now? Yeah. Should we do the outside stuff first and then move inwards? Yeah, I'm going to send Soka to deal with Oaken, because I think what my interactions with Oaken so far have shown is that undiluted, I'm a pretty poor diplomat. I'm just really not there in terms of knowing how humans work. And I'm getting towards it, but I think that meeting showed me how much distance there was still to cover. Whereas Soka is moving in the other direction and hasn't gone that far. So I think she'd be a good shout for that. Okay. Shall we zoom in on Oaken a little bit now? Yeah, I miss him. <laughs> the only one who does but I'm, I'm going to commit some um, regular bees to that so uh, with that one plus one plus one I'm going to say it's the ghost bees the regular bees and the hive minds yep. um, I'm going to send the regular bees with Soka because uh, Mel is troubled by how Soka sort of moved out of her direct conscious control I think I'd quite like the bees to be sort of like the equivalent of angels and devils on her shoulders, so I can <laughs> I can nudge her if I feel the situation requires it. Yeah. I like the idea that we get a shot of this sort of communal refractory space where we last saw Oaken. Soka may be watching him from one corner. There may be bees kind of dotted about this space, just in ones and twos, just watching and crawling on stuff, almost like Mel's little spies. I think I kind of just spotted some revolutionaries. Yeah. Yeah, I'd really love to do a scene between Oaken and them. Is it is it that Oaken goes to eat and one of them comes over, or is it that Oaken goes to speak to them? I don't think Oaken would go to speak to them. That's very fair. Yeah. So maybe after you've been eating for a little bit, one of them comes over and it's the one that was, like, watching you as you came in. He's sort of, like, short and wearing... I think quite simple but formal clothes. I think he's kind of that traditional Renaissance, Enlightenment era revolutionary where he's like probably, I think from a common background, but probably worked up to be like a lawyer or something like that. And he has that sort of look. He's right. definitely got that like intellectual look about him. Well, Oaken immediately does not like that. <laughs> um, and I think he's got like quite warm eyes. And I think along the flanks of his skin, he's kind of got like, there's sort of like different hues to the rest of his skin. I think at the minute they're sort of quite a warm pink. 
and I think he sits down opposite you. You're... you're Oaken, right? Sorry to be rude, my, my name is Boktiv Dane. They were talking about you coming and I've heard so much about you, I just wanted to come and meet you and say hello. Well, you've said hello. As I understand it, you are working with... Is it the Defiant, maybe, or the Jubilant, maybe? I, I always get those ones mixed up. Wait, wait, so they're still around? Boktiv looks slightly confused, and I think his cheeks go sort of yellowish. Oh, and, like, realises what, what you're talking about. No, yes, it, it's not that long since you... Since you joined us for the first time. It's it's not been that long. Us? I've not met you before. Are you telling me they're all still alive? Like the flacky one, the little scrawny one, floating eye one, all of them? I mean, I've been down here for a little while now. Is Ezra still around? But as far as I know, from the, from the news I've been getting, I think, yeah. Huh. Not woken up with people still around in a while. That's new. That's good, I guess. Well, that must be hard. <laughs> well, not that, not that you would know, but it is incredibly difficult, and luckily I um, take it with much grace. I'm sure you do. I, I just wanted to, to say hello. I, you know, I, I never thought you'd be on our side. Well, I'm not really on anyone's side you know just they help me out i help them out do you do you know if they're they're looking for me do you know if they have they have they said about looking for me like they uh they might miss me i i i i, I don't know it's yeah well it doesn't matter anyway of course <laughs> it, it's not been long since you got here so if they are looking for you they'll have only just started just gonna i'm not gonna interrupt this uh in c mm. Uh, but I'm just going to make Oaken aware that as the conversation progresses, there are bees slowly crawling uh, onto their conversation partner's chests, uh, quietly spelling out the word problem. <laughs> There's a bee on you. I think uh, Boktiv, like, jumps up and is just, like, swats it away. And, like, looks over at Soka, who is presumably, like, glowering at him. Yeah, th there were quite a lot of bees, enough to spell out the word problem. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Can can Oaken almost like pick up bees waggle dances now? Yes. Ooh, maybe, yeah. <laughs> yes, it was just the one bee. Waggle it out. Yeah, and Oaken's like, why can I understand what? Feeling <laughs> yeah. it in his like new arm as well. Yeah, your your arm can read, but it can only read bees. <laughs> <laughs> Oaken, I'm sure they're looking for you. You're very important to all of us. With you on our side, there is nothing we cannot do for this city. I know I'm very important. I said I've not taken sides. You are the most important person in this city. You're damn right I am. I swear on my honour that if I can, I will get you out of this place. Hmm? You trust me and, and I'll, I'll, I'll help you. And when it's time, you can come through for the revolution. There's now two bees on his hat, both saying big problem. One of them saying big, the other yeah. one saying problem. Yeah, 
I, I, I think Boktiv like moves away at that point and just I think he's read Oaken well enough to be like, I'm not gonna push him to agree to anything, but he he's trying to flatter you basically and he's trying to give you a sense of purpose so that he could maybe have you on his side. I think Oaken was shoveling stew in his mouth and kind of smiling with a mouthful of potato, <laughs> trying to get this person to leave him alone. <laughs> I think it's at this point that Soka quite rudely shepherds Boktiv away and does the classic spinning the chair around and sitting with her arms resting on the back of it, looking a bit intense. <laughs> yeah, I think Boktiv just shouts like, see you later, Jackal. Do the thumbs up. <laughs> thumbs up. Are you here to tell me how great I am too? Oh, um, quick side, but Adam, do you think it would work if you did Soka for this scene yep. while, while I constantly harass her as the bees? Because I guess the bees can yeah. make some things known only to Soka, whereas they can broadcast other things to Oaken. Yeah, no, that sounds good. What was your last line, Beck? Are you here to tell me how great I am too? No. Oh. I saw you trapped. Year after year after year. I'm here because we need you. Because you made a deal with us. And right now, if you do not help us, everything will be lost. The bees waggle to inform Oaken that he is, in fact, also great. <laughs> <laughs> Appreciate it. You know how it goes. Things will be lost anyway eventually why do you want to save them now right now an envoy means to come here and take one of the most destructive sources of power in the city and with it it will bring back everything you have fought to destroy but the thing is that'll happen and then another few centuries and it'll be back to how it was Went it? Is it still the same now as it was when you first left? Is this city still the same place that you knew as a boy? It is. It always is. Maybe the people are a bit different this time. Tell, tell him it's changed and then we can make it like it again. <laughs> tell him he's wrong. We've seen you walking around lost, unsure of where things are and who people are and how they act. We've seen you struggling with your family's new prominence, trying to work out how to wield the strange weapons that people carry now. Not struggling. I don't struggle. I act. Then act. I think for, for Soka and Mel... What's sort of in my head is like, they could commend you, but that would only get Oaken for the next bit. They're trying to win you for the long term, almost. Uh, okay, uh, yeah, I feel, I feel like it'd be really easy to just like, assume some authority and like, leverage that over Oaken. No, I think if I'm, if I'm being brutally honest, I think Mel would eventually want you to be part of her machine, very literally. Mm. And, you know, you could kind of see the arm as the first step in that. 
and you're only going to become part of that just out willingly. It's, you know, it's not something that's going to be done overnight. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. We spoke to you those centuries ago about what we wanted this city to be. We wanted the void to be healed, for this city to be healed, and this place to be good and whole again. We cannot do this alone. We need the one who killed Relict to be by our side, to be our steward. Remind him that he's, he's got to repay us as well. Remember the bargain we talked about before? Yeah? I think Soka, like, swats away a beat and is like, you will help us, or all will be chaos, all will be ashes, all will be rubble. You will help us because you said you would. And, like, she nods at the arm. And because you owe us. Knew it. I knew it. There's nothing for free. Well, you know what? If it's a simple transaction, fine by me. It's not me taking sides, just paying you back, right? No, we, we want him to take sides. We want him to take sides. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think, like, Soka shrugs. I think, like, once he is fighting, he gets caught up in things very easily. Mm. I think, theoretically, he wouldn't take a side, but once he's in there, of course he would. Yeah. Easily manipulated by... Everyone. Circumstance. Yeah, Soka's like... There's a slightly different tint to her voice. I think the the honey that's around her mouth kind of falls open. A long time ago, I... I tried to steal something from you. And I say that you owe us because I want you to understand... I owe you as much as you owe me, as much as Mel owes us both. Hey. And she, like, rests her hand on the table and begins to stand up. If you want to be the hero that everyone thinks you are, you will help us. Do you want Oaken to go anywhere in particular, Nate? Yeah, the bees, um, one of the bees is doing the follow me waggle already. (laughs) (laughs) Does Oaken follow? Yeah, he's feeling pretty bad. He's never, like, I don't know, owed anyone in this way or or been owed by anyone. I think that last bit was really, like, affecting for him. He's so used to everything being transactional or manipulative. Mm. And his time with the jubilant maybes was, like, the first time that wasn't true. But he's definitely in that mindset of everything's always like that and now there's all this evidence that maybe it doesn't have to be yeah i can see that and he doesn't have the sense to know what's right and wrong yet yes yeah or or where to align himself but it's almost like he he feels the need to align himself somewhere and then if that's wrong he will find that out yeah I, i think the problem with picking a side for him isn't the morality of the two different sides it's that it involves making a decision off his own yeah. back and from his own values, which is almost impossible for him. And the morality of the two different sides is very weird. Like, the envoys aren't operating in any kind of human scale of morality, and that must just be very hard to understand. Well, yeah, because Mel's now working on the copy of a copy of a copy of her original objectives. Um, she's sort of just going on her own momentum now. 
I don't think she's even quite sure what her morality is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, we're talking about where we wanted to send Oaken, right? Yes. So I'm going to make all my movements, and they're going to start with Oaken being sent with my big secret weapon uh, to break into the goal, because I figure if this defense goes badly, I'm going to lose my hold over the lodge. So I'm going to concentrate my best resources to try and get what I need out of the lodge. So, you know, in the worst case scenario, I can maybe get what I want, and it won't matter if I hold onto the place as a whole. That makes a lot of sense. So the goal is the space at the heart of the lodge. It is where whatever has created the lodge is. I, I kind of imagine it as a space where there's lots of rumours about what's inside that, like whether it's a piece of Kadroya or Rodella still emitting power, whether it's some kind of dead envoy, whether it's some other source of power. Maybe it is where Karnim Daka or like a weapon that killed the remnants is. I think there are countless rumours about what creates this place and what keeps it as it is. And I think... I'm trying to think about what this is like as an actual place. If we're talking about what we see on screen as as Oaken and and whatever you're sending with Oaken, we'll get to that in a minute. Sort of end of this space. Maybe maybe there's a door within the lodge. I don't think it's particularly assuming. It's just a plain wooden door. And when you open it, instead of there being another room inside, there's just a big open space and there's nothing seemingly to walk on there's no walls or floor all there is is right at the center of it very very distantly is this object i think from this distance you can't really see exactly what it is or what shape it is there's just that kind of floating around in the middle like like the nucleus of a cell almost and then there's just a big expanse, and then there's the door that you've just opened, and you're both there looking out into this into this void. Who is accompanying Oaken? Well, it's just the bee, um, and it lands on Oaken's third arm, and then an enormous horror in the rough shape of a bee made from loads of mostly defleshed human bones smashes through the wall behind him <laughs> um so the hive minds who are the people whose brains have been replaced by a load of bees it doesn't always work when mel makes them there's a lot of uh, casualties so that was a lot of useful raw material and they've been made into this bee-shaped bone colossus and what it has got all over it is wax and honey, uh, which are Mel's two materials of choice. Uh, so they're acting as sort of ligaments and musculature to keep all of the bones uh, articulated right and, and sticking together. So it's quite strong and big, but all over it also, Mel has developed a cast of bees that have massively enlarged heads and they have huge neural tissue. Because Mel's noticed that the cut and the lodge in particular te- seems to change its physical form based on how it's being perceived. Yep. And Mel's basically trying to brute force this effect. 
by having loads of these bees with massive heads. And because they're all linked to her, she can force them all to try and perceive something other than what's there. If she gets them all to think, right, there's an apple there, <laughs> because there's thousands and thousands of them swarming over this this bone titan, she reckons by sort of like the Thelemic equivalent of a DDoS attack on reality, an apple yep. will then appear, and they're all on a giant bone monster, you know, just in case things get hairy. Sorry about the giant horrible bone monster, Oaken. <laughs> So what's the plan here? How Are you using these abilities to try and create a path to the goal? Mel is trusting Oaken here. Whatever you need, tell the giant bee, and it will try and will it into existence. But it's gonna, it might be a bit of a hairy process. I mean, I don't suppose it could will up a nice, safe bridge over there. Bridge? Let's do it. I'm just going to think bridge really hard through all of those hundreds of brain bees. Okay. So what what is this thing called? Do you have a name for it? Yeah. This is called the, the Philemic Ram. Okay. What does Philemic mean? Uh, it's like the old uh, Alistair Crowley's idea. No relation. Change in accordance with will and all of that. Yeah, yeah. And I guess, like, this sounds like you're the one that's rolling here, Nate. Yeah. Um, but does, is Oaken helping in any way? I do feel like part of Oaken wishing for a bridge is maybe to run away from this thing. It, it, <laughs> is Oaken just plunging on, regardless? I mean, if it's a big void, there's really nowhere to go, right? Yeah. Is there not even another side? Like, there's no obvious boundaries to the space. Yeah, I think there's no obvious boundaries. And I don't know whether it's necessarily clear. There's probably spaces like this in the cut. You're in that weird dream series of tunnels when we when you first came here that are maybe a bit like this, where it doesn't look like there's anything there, but there might be. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's very tempting just to jump in and see what happens, but you know, maybe I can use this by monster in a more fun way. Can I kick the bone monster in and see what happens to it? Yeah! Like a canary in a coal mine. Yeah. I think that's fine. You are a jackal. You're strong. Sorry, Nate. I think I'm gonna beat you creature into this <laughs> horrible void. Fair enough. Okay, should we, should we make a roll to see how this goes? Yeah. I'll use, um, skirmish. It's maybe command sounds good, actually. Okay. <laughs> Which is the same amount of dice. It's like you commanding this thing forward, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think that feels somehow more horrible, but... <laughs> yeah. Okay, so, yeah, you get two dice for command. I guess you get help for Nate. I think this is risky standard. Okay. Two, two, and a four. A four is a mixed success. So on a four, you do it, but there's a consequence. You suffer harm, a complication occurs, you have reduced effect, you end up in a desperate position. I think that last one sounds like it. So I think you you sort of command and kick in this phalemic beast. And I think it doesn't fall. I think through a combination of both what this space is like and probably the bees on its back starting their work, as soon as it enters... 
I think all around it, shapes start to form. It, it, it seems to be stood on some kind of floor, and like a pathway begins to form around you. Do, you. do you have an idea of what this looks like, Nate, or how it's reforming the space around it? Uh, in terms of the bridge it wants? Yeah. Yeah, I think it would be, uh, you know, like the inside of a bird bone. Yeah. Like that, but wax. Cool. Yeah, so I think it's probably a mixture of things like moving from its back to build stuff versus the bees perceiving it. But as it moves forward, it begins to make this tunnel towards the goal. Do you follow, Oaken, once once you're sure that this is safe? I mean, I, I, I'm still not sure that it's safe, but I will follow. Okay. So because it's a success, you get to tick two towards getting into the goal. And that is, a, that is an eight-step clock. So you're a quarter of the way there. Yay. I think the consequence here is as you continue, and we probably like zoom out, this is probably minutes of action. I think what you begin to notice is the the strange snow that's falling begins to react to you and to your presence here. I think maybe you notice it first, Oaken. You begin to notice ahead of you as the Philemic ram is moving. This snow seems to be landing on the edge of this wax walkway. And you're maybe halfway to the goal as this happens. And you've never seen this snow land. It normally just seems to fall through stuff, but now it seems to be landing. And it's almost as if it's eating through the edges of this walkway. And it's getting brittler and brittler as you go. And I think as you notice, as you go to to cry out and like point this out to the to the giant bee in front of you, it puts one of its legs forward and it goes straight through the wax. And it oh. kind of stumbles and starts to fall. I think you watch as a flurry of the snow kind of breaks in all around it and begins to try and pull it down. Let's let's zoom out to the edges of the Winter's Lodge and to, to the other fights that are going on. So we've already seen the stuff in the inverted temple, but I think there are two other fronts that are open at the minute. In one of them... And I've not really got a picture of this place, so if anyone's got an idea of, like, an, a cool area of the Winter's Lodge, please do go ahead and describe something. Well, what about something like a sauna? A sauna? But on a grand scale. Like a human-built sauna, or, like, some hot pools, or... I'm just thinking Winter's Lodge makes me think sauna. Yeah. Um, so this might be a very hot, dark, dry space. Um ostensibly quite relaxing yeah maybe you perceive it different ways like we're, we're talking about perception here maybe for some people you walk in and it is like a large sauna and for other people it is these hot caves hypercost would be a good name for it hypercost just like the hot bit under a floor of a roman villa okay and what do you have here nate what what do you have defending this space I think classic zombies, actually. I'm sending in the hive minds. I like the idea that you've got members of this, this group kind of dotted around the lodge, but there's maybe a big cluster here. Yeah, it's kind of like when you're playing a real-time strategy game and you just panic select everything on the screen and <laughs> move it somewhere and then go around the map collecting other stuff that's elsewhere and sending that to the big fight. Yeah. So they're all gradually gathering here. And I think what we see here is you maybe get a very short scene where I'm sort of imagining in the space, if you perceive it one way, there's almost like bodies of water, like little hot pools just dotted everywhere, 
like not just on the floor but on the ceiling and on on the walls as well and as you see this group of the hive mind sort of drifting around we suddenly get this image of this big splash of water as a huge worm bursts out of of one of these pools that's on one of the walls and just takes a clutch of these people along with it yeah Woo! oh no Worms. The worms. <laughs> Worm time, baby. And then, and then I think we see a second one come from a different direction and just like swipe a bunch of them to one side. And yes, these are the worms from the ground itself episode. I, I think in between that time, Lilium has one of the ways that Lilium works because they are an envoy of mazes. And I think we're of the labyrinth and now are of the maze. It can kind of just confuse people. It can reconstruct the maze as it likes, or like to some degree. And I think it's just put them on this path. And I think they are just wreaking havoc amongst all of these people. I should probably mention that Mel is really vermiphobic. Oh, really? Um, well, yeah, because um, she's obviously always had a complete aversion to decay. So... I think the hive minds might be a little bit of a disadvantage here. Yeah, how do they react to this? Um, well, one problem is because it's so warm in here that the wax plugs that keep the bees in their heads are melting a bit. Mm. So they're leaking somewhat, and they're clustering together in big groups uh, to avoid outliers being picked off by these worms. And they're very, very confused because obviously they've... The, there's still something a bit human to them because the bees have, you know, they've not replaced their minds. Their, their consciousness has just been transferred to the bees as an operating system yep. rather than to a human mind. Um, so they've still got any human concerns they might have about the worms. So it's not great for them. I'm kind of imagining this as almost a mirror of what we saw in the temple space of like them trying to cluster together to hold this, these worms off. Yeah, genuinely that. Okay. Should we make our rolls? So I think you've got one dice for the hive mind, and I've got three. So not very fair, but let's see. Bless their little hearts. I got a four. I got a four as well. So we both get to mark two on our respective clocks. Mine goes to two of four, and yours goes to two of six. So yeah, I think this is the image we see. We see them, this initial burst out of the walls, this initial attack, and just these scared clusters of of these people just trying to fend them off and trying to work out if if there's a way they can they can fight this or not yeah they might be holding on until there's reinforcements i think that's the best i can hope for and i think let, let's go to the last space here which i think is almost a big courtyard of do you know those houses where people have just added room after room after room Oh, yeah. Yeah, it, it's one of those. But I think it's like lots of open-walled cloisters and sort of like outdoor spaces built on top of each other and beneath each other and through each other. And it's like a big, tiled, colourful space. Mm. And I think at the edges of this space, sort of slinking around, very careful, is the envoy itself, Lilium, who is almost somewhere between a sort of like centipede or millipede with spider-like legs. Seems to be formed of something metallic, almost bismuth-like. And I think if you look at them, there's almost something like Escher-like 
about their form. I think the legs sort of fold in weird, multifaceted directions. I think if you look at them from one angle and then look at them from the next, their shape is almost totally different. And so you get them just like slinking around the edges of this space, trying to find a way in. What is what is stopping them? Mel has chosen to attend to this situation. Um, she didn't know the Lilium themselves were here. Mm-hmm. She's had a feeling, so this is obviously why. And Mel has brought, because she's very big and strong, is Mel. Um, she's very hefty. She's dragging a wagon full of ghost beehives. <laughs> and she has readied a body she's been preparing for herself. Yep. Because um, Oaken's arm, if she is being honest, was kind of an afterthought. It was a, oh, actually, I could give this to Oaken and get some leverage. Yep. It was actually the prototype uh, for something she's been putting together. And this is a very large, bungalow-sized, three-legged, elephantine wax creature. Okay. Which is very simple in structure. It's got these three big elephant-like legs, it's got a big round body, and it's got two big wax arms. And very simply, Mel unplugs the wax corking the back of her own head, and then opens a little hole in this one, and all the bees flow out of her into the new body, and Mel, poor old Mel, sort of just deflates like all the air going out of a bouncy castle (laughs) as this new thing becomes rigid, and then the ghost bees flock to the ends of its arms where they form two massive fists of ghost honey, where she's collected all of the angry thoughts of the city's inhabitants over the last year, storing them as spectral honey, and they've now spun them into a couple of big fists. So it's a massive wax mecca with fists made of congealed anger. (laughs) <laughs> amazing and is this just like crunching its way through all of this this structure yep just walking through it like a careless child through Weetabix okay. I, I'm kind of imagining Lilium is is almost trying to avoid this figure as it kind of knocks over bits, bits of building and sends rubble across the courtyard yeah I mean of course the carnage it's causing is making Mel's head ache horribly uh, because this beautiful ordered space. Well, no, actually, I suppose it's becoming more orderly now because it's becoming nice uniform rubble. <laughs> Should we make our roll and see how this goes? So I roll three d six again because it's Lilium, and you get Mel. And is the are the ghost bees help, helping? Well, yeah, they're my fists. So it's four dice for me. So you get four dice, yeah. Oh no! Oh yikes! <laughs> So you, you rolled a three, a three, a two, and a one. Uh, so your highest is a three. So you get to tick one bit of this clock. That was bad. <laughs> well, welcome to these flimsy rituals where we roll badly all the time, unless you're me, apparently, because I rolled a one, a two, and a six, which lets me tick three bits of this clock. Well, nice one, Mel. <laughs> so I'm at three of four, and you're at one of six. She should have tested this thing. Yeah. I like this image of you shattering your way through this courtyard just trying to to catch up to Lilium, and it just never quite being at your grasp i described it as having this uncanny geography to itself right and i think it has when you go to punch it 
you you think you've connected you think one of these fists has hit it and then you like look again and it was its flank is a few feet to the side of like where you thought it was it's very hard to keep track of and i think you spend a while just chasing it and doing this but then i think it begins to attack back or it, it, it while it's got you distracted it begins to try and break in to this space itself and i think the way it does this is it begins to break off parts of itself. I think its body is segmented. I think as we watch it, segments of itself, you know, at random junctures for its body, almost lift up their own legs and pull themselves out of the body. And for a moment, you think there are huge gaps as these pieces pull themselves out, but then you look again and it's just whole. And out of the body has dropped this little weird segment of bismuth that forms itself into this multi-limbed shape. And there are many of them, almost hopping around the courtyard. Too many for you to swat at the minute. Oh. The thing you realise is that as they move through the spaces, you're not the only one who can reshape the cut. Because these little creatures, the uncannied, begin to just pull pieces of the cut around themselves and reshape it and bend it to their will. You know, there's a wall at one point and then you're looking through it and there's like a desert. There is a doorway and suddenly there's a flood of water coming through it and they start to just pull at where you know the walls of the winter's lodge to be trying to find a way through can i just say this apart from anything else makes mel intensely jealous <laughs> yeah because she has been she's invested so much in that bloody bee monstrosity <laughs> like you know just trying to like brute force her way to doing what this bloody envoy does so naturally she doesn't know how they do it i think this is kind of hammering home that this is this envoy's terrain this is where it is and mel is very much an underdog here fair so i think that was a complete turn so let's go back to oaken inside the goal so oaken you are in this wax tunnel the bee in front of you has just suddenly been swarmed by all of these particles of of what looks like snow. It's almost as if you're watching, you know, like a great beast being swarmed by flies. Oh. There's just more and more of it just pulling through. So so they've not dropped through the wax walkway? No, I think, like, bits, like, the feet have kind of, like, gone through. Right. But, like, not all of them, just, like, one or two of them. Okay. And depending on how on how the bee reacts, like as it like stomps around, maybe other feet kind of go through and are just like piercing holes in it. Right. I think the thing you notice is where its feet have gone through, it doesn't necessarily look like the void. It looks like there's other rooms or tunnels or shapes through them. Hmm. And I guess my two questions here are how is the Flemic Ram reacting and what is Oaken doing? Um, I don't know. I kind of, I want to help this thing. And also it's in my way, so I need it out of my way. I guess my my first thought is that, like, well, there are things underneath. So if I break the bridge on purpose, it will fall to safety. And <laughs> also be out my way, maybe. Yeah. I'm just looking at my sheet and thinking about what Oaken can actually do. So yeah, it like like from my perspective, like 
that there is a way forward where you just get into a fight with with this swarm and you know that would be in a desperate position or there's a version of this where you just leave it behind like i feel like going through one of these walls wouldn't necessarily you know you're not going to plunge to your death you'd get yourself somewhere else or as you said you could try and bring it with you by just smashing the floor around it or near it i can't really think of a, a better plan to be honest let's do some smashing it'll yeah. have a good thrash around to help you out yeah well you're covered in particles you're having a bad time I think the unknown is that whether they'll follow you when you fall or if they will then turn on me. That's just something I'll have to find out. Your other option here is you could do a survey and get a sense of what's going on a bit better, if that would help. Yeah, that would. That feels like a nice point of learning for Oaken as well. You've got to do the litany. Yeah, I was thinking that before, actually, when, when we first got engulfed. I was like... Wow, I should have like stopped and lit some candles and set the <laughs> litany. Yeah. So yeah, I think I will stand back and watch this poor creature suffer for a little bit to figure out what's going on. Okay. I think this is just controlled. Can I use a tune? Can I like vibe it? Yeah, if that's what you prefer. Yeah. Okay. A two and a four. A four is pretty good. What would you like to know from the scene? Would you like to know more about what the snow is doing? Yeah, I think I would like to know maybe the intent behind its actions. Yeah. If there is one. I think you'd probably get a couple of things here. I think the intent of it, it seems to be that whatever this is, whatever this static snow is, it seems to be linked to the goal seems to be falling through the lodge to this space and then swirling around. And you're judging from how it's treating the Philemic Rem that it's trying to defend this space. Particularly, it seems to be defending itself against anything that's trying to change this space, I think is the main thing you get. The sense you get is you've almost got two options here. You've got the option which is you just fight against it and you change the space to till you get to the center and it will fight you more and more but maybe you can fight it you don't know or there's the version of this where you just trust in the goal and you almost cast mel to one side and you just go yourself yeah fight it fight that's what the bees mm. say <laughs> it's just doing the wackle dance for have a <laughs> So, why am I trying to get the goal again? So, it's the thing that Mel wants. It is a source of great power that Mel, Lilium, and I guess Karnim Daker want, although Karnim Daker isn't here at the minute. Yeah. I've been pitched that everyone else wants it to create chaos, or they want it for reasons that will inadvertently create chaos. Yeah. Have I been pitched as to why Mel wants it? I think Mel sees it as the source of power that she can use to become a remnant or make a new remnant. Yeah, become, if we're honest. And I imagine Lilium has similar motives. Karnim Daker probably doesn't want to do that, but probably wants to use it or protect it in some way. Hmm. If you get there first and get into it, you can almost play Kingmaker and choose who gets it. 
you could also destroy it or protect it or whatever. Well, just the worst person to be in this yeah. position. Like anyone else <laughs> from the Jubilant Babies would be such a better fit for this kind of power. <laughs> yep. Maybe maybe Oaken would just walk forward. So are you just stepping past the Philemic Rem? Yeah. I'm just walking slowly forwards. I love the idea of just this thing being left behind. <laughs> Oaken just kind of shrugging and stepping over it. Okay. Um I mean we describe this thing as being in a desperate situation, so I guess I guess there's two roles here. I guess one role is for the Philemic Ram to see whether it survives, because I think Mel still having an agent here is interesting, versus it just being destroyed by this snow. So you get two dice, and let's see how this goes. Ah, uh, a six. Okay, so on a six you do it. So I guess this means that, oh, can you leave this giant bee in this cloud of snow, fending it off behind you? Are you just continuing to walk towards the goal? Yeah, just nice, cool, okay. calm and collected of the Melanie. There were no candles to light, but... Yeah, and would you would you like to make a roll to see your progress here and see how it goes? Yeah, what should I roll? It's up to you, but a tune again makes sense. Yeah, I think that's fine. It's about me almost trying to show this space that I'm not here to change it. Yeah. And I, I think that makes sense as to why no one's just managed to get it before as well. Maybe they felt the intent to change things as soon as they stepped in. Yeah, and you're, you're one of the first people who's been like, okay, this is how we do it. Did you want any to push yourself or for Devil's Bargain or anything? This, this kind of needs to work. I need to push myself. Okay. So I get a uh, stress? Yeah, you take two stress for that. I think this is controlled standard. So that's a four, a two, and a five. Okay, so on a five you get to tick two more segments of this clock. So you're now four of eight on getting this. So yeah, I imagine what we see is Oaken stepping forward and just continuing to walk past this wax. And I think as you walk... Every step you take, the snow almost seems to just form under your feet. And it doesn't necessarily make a complete walkway, but like it's almost like tiny little footsteps that rush up to meet you. And you just keep walking. Is this weird to Oaken, or does he just accept it? So, remember way back when, when we were fighting Relic, and Oaken did his very cool run over the stalagmites? And yeah. I think this is... This is kind of his thing. Cool. It's got good balance. Yeah, so we just we just see him walk forward. Yeah. I think before we get to, to, to the goal itself, I think we probably see behind the ram getting swarmed by these tiny specks of static. And I think for Oaken, you expect that this is maybe the last you'll see of it. But we maybe see as an audience, that, that we see it sort of shake its way off and plunge down through the mm. wax into whichever bit of the cut it's fell into. It's going to open up some big bee wings made out of bones. Mmm, yeah. Make a horrible clattering that flies. I think it's sort of off screen for now, but it's there as a tool that you can use, or it might be back at some point as well. Excellent. 
I think Okendo, you reached the goal. And I think the thing that is very interesting here is as you get closer and closer, this tiny thing, which is, you know, sort of like paper white, and it has like all of these veins running through it, doesn't get any bigger. You're kind of expecting for this to be a trick of perspective. Like as you got closer to it, it might be 10, 12 feet across. But as you get close to it, you realize that it's about the size of like a tennis or a cricket ball sort of oval in shape and just floating in the middle of the air. What do you do? Oh, <laughs> it's such mm -hmm. a big decision. Do you touch it? Yeah. I was going to destroy it with the thought that like, ah, then you're all fighting over nothing because it's fine. But after attuning with it, I don't feel like I can. Mm. I want to keep it safe. Yeah. Maybe I'll um kind of touch it with the honey arm and absorb it into there to keep it safe. Almost sort of like grabbing it and it forms in. Yeah. So what I imagine is it kind of traveling up to nestle in that little cavity. Yep. Where Mal used to live. Okay. I think as you do that, this entire space just collapses on itself. And it's not necessarily destructive or anything like that. It just is that you don't feel like fear or panic or anything like that. It just sort of folds itself away. Hmm. And I think as you take this in, the next moment you're stood back in one of the rooms of the Winter's Lodge. The goal is nestled in inside the cavity. It's safely under your control at the minute. Can I posit something before I do it? Yep. Maybe at this point, it could be really interesting for Mel to just be like, fantastic, my secret plan worked, and just drop all of her consciousness apart from the one B, which has been with Oaken, that quietly just absorbs itself into the um the honey arm. Ooh. I did I was worried that Mel having control over that arm would mean that I'm basically just giving it to them. Yeah. I do like this. Because then it's like all of the stuff with the big monsters and stuff has all been a pantomime basically. Because Mel is becoming aware over time that she is failing. She's lost her original purpose and she's panicking because she had expected to grow into a new purpose by now and she hasn't. She's just sort of experimenting and growing uncontrollably. But Oaken seems to have the element of relict that she lost. So she really wants him to have whatever's in the goal. Oh. And she wants to be a part of that. Yeah. Because she's sick of being in control of the hive mind. So she's quite happy to be a part of someone else's consciousness. And she thinks Oaken's now the nearest thing to what she used to be. So she has been trying to get things into a situation where he's got the goal or what, what was in it. And she can then just hide out in the arm. You know, that's why the lone bee has been following mm. Oaken for all this time. Because she's just basically just 
shut off her entire hive mind and just shrunk down into that one bee, which has now uh, dissolved itself in the honey arm. God, this is so good. Are we cool with that? I'm cool with that. Yeah, me too. At, at first I thought it was like Mal stealing it, but this is really good. It's such like a left field thing, and I love it so much. It also leaves the Winter's Lodge completely defenceless, which is interesting. <laughs> but, you know. Yeah, because Mel was never interested in the Lodge. <laughs> yeah. Can I add one one detail to this? Yeah. Yes. Which is, I think this is the moment where Soka enacts her betrayal. Oh, okay. <gasps> I think we get this image of Oaken sort of arriving back in the Lodge, being a bit thrown and not quite being sure where he is as he's doing that we see soka striding confidently across the floors of the lodge maybe has a weapon in one of her hands i think she has been privy to all of these plans and ideas and has over time has started thinking differently to mel has started having other ideas about the way that things should be done i think she is much more convinced of her argument earlier that this place needs fixing and she is much more convinced that Mel herself and Soka herself can can do this. She is a combination of human and envoy and I think she has ambition and greed and hope and desire and faith in the fact that she can change things, that she can make something better, something that is a combination of remnant and human both. And she means to enact it. But I think as she steps forward and takes three quick paces across this floor and moves into striking distance of Oaken, she takes that next fourth step and Mel collapses her consciousness. And Soka, centuries old, held up by just this wax, this network of spirit, is no more and just collapses to the floor a few feet in front of you knife clattering across the tiles <laughs> <laughs>